0: got a great inspiration of a guest here today for Spirit in Action, Jim Zalikowski, co-founded Build With Books, now called Build On, about 20 years ago, with a dual focus. Build-On combines a focus on rejuvenating inner-city schools in the USA through service in those communities and sometimes as part of the other focus, building schools in the very poorest areas around the world. Jim wrote about his incredible journey with Build-On with many, many thousands of volunteers transforming and being transformed and with over 550 schools built and the book is Walk in Their Shoes, Can One Person Change the World? Before we go to Jim, I'll note that support for this show comes from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, attorney Catherine B. Schultz, a believer in honesty, accuracy, and world-healing work, therefore supporting the work of Northern Spirit Radio. Her world-healing work includes helping her clients get a new start to their finances by guiding them through bankruptcy when needed. For help, you can call Catherine B. Schultz at 715 835 Eight nine zero four, And I also want to remind you to put a special Northern Spirit Radio event on your schedule for November 2nd. It will be hosted right here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and there will be a speaker on organic standards, some organic and or local pizza and Middle Eastern foods, and concerts by three different musicians. Find out more details on northernspiritradio.org and be there on November 2nd, 2013 for what we're calling... Feed your body, feed your soul, turn your radio on. One more thing. To get us geared up to talk to Jim Zylakowski about his book, Walk in Their Shoes, Can One Person Change the World? We're going to listen to a song by Andy Murray, One Person at a Time. And then we'll get to Jim on the phone.
2: Oh, the world's so big and I'm so small It hardly seems I matter at all Sometimes I think I'd like to do something to help out with all the problems of the world, but whenever I sit down and think it through, I always wonder, what can one person do? I wrote that myself. Well, what can one person do is a very good question if you don't do nothing at all. You could spend your time saving every little dime or just curled up by the wah-ha-ha. But if you think back some over all has been done And you wonder who did it and where it came from Figure it out without a doubt One person at a time did it all One person at a time, it sure works fine Just roll up your sleeve, sign on the dotted line Whatever gets done is done by one One person at a time does it all, yeah One person at a time does it all Well, what can a one person do? It's a very good question if you don't do nothing at all You could stay in bed, pull the covers overhead And wait for the sky to fall But if each one would just do what they could Working one at a time, we could do a lot of good Figure it out, without a doubt One person at a time does it all One person at a time, it sure works fine Pick up your load and get in line Whatever gets done is done by one One person at a time, they do it all, yeah One person at a time does it all Well,
1: what can
2: one person do? Is a very good question If you don't do nothing at all you can soak in the tub, or join a social club, or just go shopping at the mall. But if each one would work side by side with another one, the work gets multiplied. Figure it out, without a doubt, one person at a time does it all. One person at a time, it sure works fine No use to wait for a better time Whatever gets done is done by one One person at a time does it all, yeah One person at a time does it all Listen, children, one person at a time Everybody working one
0: person at a time We can all do it one person at a time They do it all Jim, I'm really excited to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate being here, and I'm, and
3: I'm very honored.
0: As one person who's traveled in Africa to another, I want to start out with the appropriate question. How are Jenny and Jack and Quinn doing? Oh, thanks
3: for asking, Mark. My family's doing well. You know, As as I write about I'm incredibly grateful to have Jenny as my partner and my wife in this journey, and and my two boys I find inspiration with every single day, and I'm especially moved and inspired by how strong and determined my boy Jack has been in spite of the challenges that he's faced with encephalitis and meningitis. So they're doing well, you know, but every day is, is a new day, and it's, it's a long journey, and, you know, we got to stay focused and
0: be mindful. And I want to give a shout out to Quinn, who has really a different kind of hard that he has to live through with Jack's medical trauma that that has happened so much. I mean, he's had to be center stage just for survival reasons. But Quinn, in that case, being the loving brother, has done monumental work of his own there.
3: In a word, Quinn is
0: awesome. He
3: is such a a wonderful hilarious little guy he's incredibly creative and he's you know really been loving and supportive with jack and with the family and we definitely could not have gotten through it or continue to keep going without quinn he's he's a remarkable little guy we love him an awful lot
0: Now, if I had given you the full African welcoming, I wouldn't have asked just about, you know, Johnny, Jack, and Quinn. I would have asked about the ancestor, and I'd ask about your goat
3: (laughs) and the whole thing. right.
0: (laughs) How much did you pick up of Native ways living as you did so often, you know, about building these schools?
3: Well, I think the greatest teachers and mentors I had were community members, the parents, the grandparents, even the children in the village you know the first time and the first school we built was in Malawi Africa and that's the first time I'd been to Africa and we had gone into that village with the intention of completely immersing with the community learning from them how to build this school and how to work together behind a common purpose and a common cause and there are no greater teachers in the world than these community members they have been generous and inspiring on so many different levels so I'm very very grateful to have have learned basically everything I know about work in developing countries from them. Well,
0: let's spell out what Build On, and it started off being known as Build With Books, and the website, buildon.org. Please sketch in more of the current day big picture.
3: Sure. What we're doing at Build On is working to break the cycle of poverty, illiteracy, and low expectations through service and education. And we do it by running intensive after-school programs in urban high schools in the United States. And in these schools, in some of the most challenged communities and neighborhoods in the country, our kids are contributing remarkable amounts of direct service, working with elders and homeless people and younger children every day, in their neighborhoods and at the same time these kids are building schools in developing countries so we take kids literally from the south bronx to west africa to build schools from detroit and chicago to haiti to build schools and it's transformational on every level and we have now built about 550 schools around the world uniting and partnering with community members in africa and asia and central america and haiti our kids in the United States have contributed over 1.1 million hours of service, which is a testament to their compassion.
0: You know, I think that the work with the urban schools, the inner city schools, people who are often challenged just in their own finances, that work, I think, has to be unimaginable, the transformations that happened. I really appreciated the stories that you shared of Johnny and Raya, I think was her name, those stories which you included in the book. And again, the name of the book is Walk in Their Shoes, Can One Person Change the World by Jim Silikowski. So you shared those stories of people like Johnny and Raya. Can you flesh in some of the people who actually do this traveling to other countries to help build
3: schools? Sure. Well, why don't we talk about Raya for a minute? You know, she she is one of the most remarkable, inspiring kids I've ever met. Yet there are thousands of people just like Raya that are involved in our work every day. So I met Raya for the first time in a shelter for homeless veterans in Detroit, Michigan, and we were working together preparing meals and serving meals to these veterans, these homeless vets. I noticed how Raya was connecting with these vets, and she wasn't. Even 16, maybe just turned 16 years old, and the way she smiled, connected, and lifted up the vets was remarkable to me. So I, I said to Rea at the end of the the day, I said, "Man, what is your motivation? You know, how do you how do you connect with these guys the way you do?" And she told me that they gave her her smile back, and you know I didn't know what that meant at the time, and I, I got to know her uh, a lot more deeply and found out that Rhea was never closer to anybody than her brother Arnez. Arnez was the guy that took her to school. He took her to service projects. He was the guy that always took her out to celebrate her birthday. And Arnez was killed. He was shot by an AK-47 about three weeks before Raya's 15th birthday. And Raya was devastated by that and couldn't, couldn't function, man. She was paralyzed. And uh, when her birthday finally rolled around, she knew she couldn't celebrate. So she decided to do a day of service, in honor of Vandell instead of celebrating. And that's the first day that she went to the Detroit Vet Center. That's the first time she met with these vets. And and instead of going there and and she expected to serve them and help them, they lifted her up. They helped her. And and she's gone on to contribute over 700 hours of service in her community. And she went on to build a school in Nicaragua. And now she's going to be a sophomore at Bowling Green State University. And she won a full ride, a scholarship for her service, and she she got honors her first year in college. So it's heroes like Rhea that inspired me and and made me want to write this book. I wanted her voice to be heard and for her to get the recognition that she deserves.
0: Yeah, just amazing stories like that. The one one about Johnny was perhaps even more transformative because, you know, we all have messed up lives in one way or another. But the challenges that a lot of these volunteers face at home are so monumental, yet when they go and travel to another country, get loved there, get appreciated there, and can make such a difference in someone else's life, I've just got to believe that that brings them back with superpowers to our culture to make a change here.
3: Absolutely it does. I think kids come back understanding not only the importance of education because they're working side-by-side with villagers to build these schools, everybody's contributing to build and working together, all volunteers. And so they they see how hard the the parents work to build these schools. And the second thing they get is a a sense of accomplishment. They know what they can do, what they can accomplish, and that really nothing can hold them back. So they elevate expectations for themselves and they elevate expectations for their community. And in the toughest schools where the graduation rates are lowest in the United States where we're working, truancy goes down. And ninety-five percent of the kids we work with not only graduate, they go to college. So it's it's pretty powerful. Very powerful.
0: I can't imagine a greater testament to the kind of work you're doing at Build On. Again, folks, the website is buildon.org and the book is Walk in Their Shoes, Can One Person Change the World? And I bet you the answer is yes.
3: That, that's the question, Mark, is can one person change the world? And when we decided on that subtitle, I was hoping it would create a conversation where optimists would say, yes, one person can change the world, but then other people would say, no, that's arrogant to think that one person can change the world. And I've got to tell you that the best answer that I've heard came from a, a girl named Marlena, and Marlena's from the South Bronx. I met her in Haiti while we were building a school. And before she got involved in our program, she had missed 44 days of school and gotten all Fs as an 8th grader. And she entered a school where only 38% of the kids graduate a high school as a freshman, and the odds are stacked heavily against her. And I find myself, you know, working with Marlena side by side to build this school, and I looked over at her and I said, so what do you think? Can one person change the world? And she thought for a few minutes, and she looked back at me, and she said, yes, one person can change the world, but not by yourself. And I thought that was the best answer. You know, it's it's profound, it's simple, and it's a paradox.
0: Well, and it's like the song that I started this program with. One person at a time does it all. But, yeah, if you want to know how it got done... One person at a time did it all, and that's the difference that Build On is making. It's letting people know that they can do it. So let's go back to the beginning for Build On, back when it was called Build With Books. One person at a time did it all. It was three of you. It was you and your brother Dave and your friend Eric Dorf. The three of you came together and hatched this harebrained idea, you know, you're <laughs> going to build schools internationally. What were your motivations back when Build On started?
3: The idea for Build On really came when I traveled around the world. I graduated college, worked a couple of jobs, saved as much money as I could, and backpacked and hitchhiked around the world and spent most of my time in developing countries. The first country I went to was India, and I was overwhelmed by really extreme poverty and the injustice of extreme poverty. And then I went from India to Nepal, really went from the frying pan into the fire because the poverty index is much worse in Nepal than it is in India. And I was climbing up into the mountains and and I I passed through a village and saw that they were celebrating something. And and it was monsoon, so it's raining. I look around and there's 100, maybe 200 people dancing in the rain. And it turns out that they were celebrating the opening of a school. And it was a two-day celebration, Mark. They never went home. And it was really, for me, very, very inspiring because not only had I seen the injustice of extreme poverty, but now I'm seeing the dedication, the hope, the courage that people have around education. And when I came back to the United States, you know, I saw poverty in America much differently, and especially in American cities and inner cities and I really wanted to act on my experience because I saw the common thread as being the hope and the courage and the determination. American, you have that same determination that the people in Nepal have, and so I wanted to act on this, but I completely chickened out, and I went in the opposite direction. I joined GE and started a fast-track career in finance, and then finally, after about 15 or 16 months, you know, felt I had a responsibility, though I love GE and it was everything I had studied, I knew it wasn't the right thing for me to do, so I left GE to start build on.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the skills that you had, or maybe more importantly, even some of the skills you didn't have when you started up build on. I think it's so funny. It's kinda of the amazing presumption of youth. That the three of you, you, Dave, and Eric, when you're going to do none of you had particularly construction experience, right? You, if you didn't have construction experience, and yet you're going out there to build schools as you know the 20 year old experts, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty
3: presumptuous. No, it's presumptuous. It was borderline idiotic. It was lunacy. So you're right, Mark. We had no experience. We had no experience building schools. In construction, we had no experience with community development, mobilizing villagers to build these schools. We had no experience in youth development, in working with American youth and urban youth. We didn't have a strategic plan, yet we had committed to building three schools on three different continents, and we had set up our programs in three different American high schools. We formed these partnerships and identified specific villages, and maybe 200 American youth, were behind us and in the program back here in the states but after about five months maybe six months we hadn't been able to raise a penny we had faced immense rejection not only did we get rejected by every foundation, corporation, or, or individual that we talked to about funding it, but they give us a lot of reasons why we would fail. And the worst part was that they were legitimate reasons. <laughs> you know, we, we, were, there, we couldn't point to any track record. And, and it, it was a very, very difficult time for me. Probably one of, one of the low points in my life was just realizing how inadequate my experience was to do what we had committed to doing. But,
0: and this one I want to give you to your credit, you didn't end up believing them. And (laughs) have you ever read the book, The Phantom Tollbooth? It's generally considered maybe a kid's book. It goes through imaginary adventures and so on. But there's a guy who pops up along the way and he says, I've got something very important I've got to tell you, but I won't tell you till the end. And so, anyway, get to the end. uh, He says, Well, what was that you wanted to tell me? He says, Well, what you were about to, what you just did is impossible. (laughs) <laughs> and it's like, yeah. yes. So oh, it's, like, it's a good yeah. thing you didn't buy into the fact that it was impossible. I, I guess I'd say with faith, all things are possible. And, you know, you were just learning your faith, I think, along that path.
3: I was. And that that was probably, you know, the most pivotal time in sort of my own faith and development. As As that rejection mounted, we received a fax message from our partner in Malawi, Africa, you know, they said, today we announced to the village that you're coming to build this school. The kids immediately broke out and sung and danced and celebrated for hours. And they weren't, Mark, they were not supposed to tell them about that. You're a Peace Corps person. You know. You, you don't <laughs> announce anything to a village until you're sure you're going to be there. We were far from sure. So they sent it. but the, the last line was the worst, the killer. It, it said, needless to say, they will be equally disappointed if you fail to come and the key word was fail we were failing and then i once i got this fax i i realized the repercussions of failure that kids from one of the poorest villages in malawi in africa would not get a school and and a 200 american youth would once again be disillusioned by empty promises made by adults like me and i, I was thinking you know i was really being paralyzed by the fear of failing and it's at that point, I think, where, where I was at rock bottom, didn't know where else to turn, that I found a very profound message in the Gospel of Mark where Christ is going to heal a little girl, but they tell him, she's passed, she's dead, don't bother. And then they ridicule him a little bit, and he looks back and he says, fear is useless. What is needed is trust. And I realized, you know, when I read that, that I was being crushed by fear that I would never be able to live out my values if I succumbed to the fears that I was facing. So I I knew I had to overcome them, and uh, I knew they were useless. So I started to put it in the right perspective and just keep
0: going. And in spite of the resemblance between the gospel of Mark's name and my own, I don't take any credit for that. (laughs) (laughs) I got inspired by some of the same stuff, of course, right? (laughs) Yeah, but I'm sure you resonated more with Mark than the other three, eh? Well, actually, kind of John is my gospel, but well, and I'm a big fan of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, all those things, but all of that makes a difference for me. I want to remind you that you're listening to Spirit in Action. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet, for this Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org with eight-plus years of programs available free for listening and download. You'll find links to our guests there, a place to share comments. We need you to talk to us, folks. And there's a place for donations as well. Much appreciated. Also appreciated is support from Eau Claire attorney Catherine B. Schultz, a big believer in honesty, accuracy, and world-healing work. In her case, that includes helping clients restart their finances by guiding them through bankruptcy when needed. For help, call Catherine B. Schultz at 715-835-8904. I especially want to remind you to support your local community radio station, both with your hands and your wallet. Community Radio gives you music and news that only very rarely make it to the airwaves of other stations. There's also a profound, fun, and tasty way to support Northern Spirit Radio coming up. Mark down Saturday, November 2nd for Northern Spirit Radio's event called Feed Your Body, Feed Your Soul, Turn Your Radio On. There will be Will Fantel of Cornucopia Institute speaking on small farms and organic standards, an organic and local meal of pizza and Middle Eastern foods, and concerts by Peter Fippen, Robbie Crawford, and Sue West, all held at Pizza Plus in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Show up on November 2nd or send a contribution and check it out on northernspiritradio.org. Now let's get back to Jim Zalikowski, co-founder of buildon.org, transforming inner cities in the USA with community involvement, and having already built over 550 schools in the poorest areas of the globe. And he's author of Walk in Their Shoes, Can One Person Change the World? You know, Jim, you've got a lot of great stories in the book, and you're pretty transparent about the rather steep leaning curve you had to go through. In particular, your second school was in Malawi, a village called Misumali, and you had a bit of an adventure as first your brother Dave and then your friend Eric got sick almost to the edge of death. And then shortly after that, you come down with malaria and go right to the precipice of life's end. What did you learn from that brush with death?
3: Wow, that's a a good question, Mark, and something I, I think about all the time. So just to give you and your audience some context, Dave and Eric and I had decided to live in this village and, as I mentioned before, learn from the community how to build, how to unite, how to work to build something. And when we got there, there were about 150 kids going to a thatch hut, attending a school that was just in a thatch hut and only 12 of them were girls. We agreed that if they would send their daughters to school in equal numbers with their sons. And if they were willing to contribute the labor to build the school and to help lead the project, then we could do it. We could build that school. And we decided we weren't going to leave until we got that school built, which was a much bigger commitment than we realized. So as you mentioned, my brother Dave contracted malaria, as did Eric, and both of them almost died. Eight days after my brother contracted malaria, I collapsed. I had 104-degree fever lost consciousness, went into convulsions, and really, by the grace of God, Dave was strong enough and able to drag me into one of two hospitals in the country at that time. And when I came out of it, a day or two later, we're, we're not even sure how long I was out, the doctor came in and, and told me, he, he said, two more hours away from this hospital and you would have been dead. You know, my veins had already begun to collapse. You know, I was, I was, Was very very fortunate. I was back on my feet in a couple of days. Dave had a different strain of malaria, so he had to come back to the states to recover. I went back, decided to go back to the village, and I'm walking those last few miles back. And I looked around, and you know, I realized that when these community members, especially the kids, when they contract malaria, they do not have a near death experience. They die. You know, why did I survive and they don't? I asked myself, and and the answer is extreme poverty. They, they can't afford the $1 for a mosquito net or the $20 to go to a hospital or even the medications. So, you know, I was pretty demoralized and, and almost turned around and started walking the other direction. But then I thought to myself that if we could get this school built, then maybe they could break that cycle of extreme poverty. So I, I turned around and kept going and went back to the village to keep working
0: away at that school. And the history is now 550 schools that have been built growing from this vision. One of the things I want to talk about your early days, uh, things were not very smooth at the beginning, particularly between you and Dave in terms of first fundraising, how you're doing that. And and then when you were building, he wanted to hire some people. And you had a, a very strong principle, no, they have to do the work, we can't do that, otherwise they'll... They'll see it as a, a gimme project, you know, a, a gift. And so, and you saw enough of how that went awry in places. Well-meaning gifts to people, disempowered people. So, you know, you had your good motives and Dave had his good motives. Right. One of the things I thought was kind of ironic, maybe a bit funny, was that you eventually came around to Dave's way of thinking, although you had really had butted heads with him on this and, you know, kind of went your separate ways in terms of what to do about this. So... I guess I want to ask you about the benefits of stubbornness or maybe insistence or dedication. You can call it by nicer names, but stubbornness can work against you and can work for you. How do you see that and other attributes that you had as being influential in what came to be built on? Well, first, I, you know I got to tell you, as
3: I write clearly in the book, that I've made a lot of mistakes over these 22 years, and that was one of them. Dave was right. You know, he wanted to hire skilled construction supervisors that would be able to work with us in the village, and I, I wanted those skilled construction supervisors to volunteer their time the way we were. In addition to all the community members, you know, any any school that we build requires between 1,500 and 3,000 volunteer work days to build. When we were in Miss O'Malley, I wouldn't compromise. You know, I, I said everybody's got to be all in volunteering, and I was wrong. Dave was right. And the next project, we did compromise. And I learned, you know, from Dave that that was the right way to go, that the community could still lead the project, could still contribute and build the school without being so extreme. And so I I feel like I was not only stubborn, but extreme. And once we changed that aspect of our methodology, things really took off and improved and You know, we developed a covenant out of that between us and the community members, outlining their commitments to build the school, contributing the labor to build the school, and sending their daughters to school in equal numbers with their sons while we bring in the materials and the construction expertise. And it's been amazing. It's been an amazing journey.
0: Mostly in the book experiencing the journey along with you the stories just are world changing for someone who hasn't been exposed to this things and you opened my eyes to a number of things that I hadn't experienced I have to open your eyes to one thing that I think you got wrong in the book it's a minor mistake you know, when you talk about you were visiting Mother Teresa's group and, you know, you're, when you heard them pray the Lord's Prayer without the these-thous type language, right, you know, in modern English, and you, you talked about how valuable it was to you to hear it without the formal language. Well, actually, few enough people know this, I know it because I'm Quaker, the English language, there used to be the informal and the formal. The informal is the... The formal is you. We abolished the informal in English, and everybody's you. So now we use it for informal oh, formal, both. I, I so, never knew that. That's interesting. <laughs> right. And so, you know, you've been exposed to other languages where in French you have tu and vous, and, you know, you use the tu for individual. The yep. vous you use for plural, a group of people. Or, for formal, you're talking to the king, right? You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, actually, the language that's preserved, you know, when we talk to God with thee, we're actually speaking as a familiar. We're speaking intimately with the divine. So, anyway, given that thee and thou, all that sounds stilted, your reaction still true is, is still right you know let's speak like we do when we're really speaking to our friends now so i'm i'm not knocking it i'm just pointing out to you oh, about grammar market
3: I, I i didn't know that and that's
0: valuable i like that i like that a lot while we're talking about this let's talk a little bit about faith you grew up catholic i grew up catholic i became a quaker somewhere in my late teens early 20s Faith has played, as I read in the book, walk in their shoes. It's played an important part in sustaining you and motivating you. Can you talk a little bit of how you see that, uh, your own journey into deeper faith?
3: Sure. You know, I think for me, the faith was, was really something that was passed down to me from my father. He had remarkable faith. And my mom said early on, like, that, it's a gift. You know, I don't know anybody like him. And he said that, too. Faith, in some ways, is really a gift. And, And I think I was very fortunate to have inherited that same faith that he had, and it became sort of the cornerstone of who I am, and it also became provocative. I believed in the ideals of social justice. I believed strongly that we needed to serve our sisters and brothers, and that that was our essential purpose, but I was not living that belief to the extent that I felt like I should. And so it was that faith and the challenges that come with faith that really moved me to live a more active life.
0: Have you always felt clear you were Catholic? Did you rebel? I mean, a lot of people, you know, after you get confirmed, I think Protestants do this particularly, a lot of them, okay, I've got confirmed, so now I don't have to go to church anymore. I was raised Catholic, you know, we go every Sunday. I got confirmed? Yeah, I go every Sunday. It just was part of that. Did you have a, a point where you felt like your faith was a little lapsed? You certainly got exposed to a lot of the world's religions and got benefit from them too. Well, no,
3: I you know I think that the exposure that I had to different world religions helped to enrich my own faith and my own tradition. And I don't follow the dogma to the T. And I, you know, there are parts of the Catholic tradition that that I am less invested in than other parts, but I I certainly learned a lot about compassion and learned a lot about mindfulness from reading some of the books that His Holiness the Dalai Lama wrote and by interacting with the Dalai Lama. And I've also learned a lot from studying a lot of the stories and philosophies of Mahatma Gandhi and also the way he lived his life and his principles of nonviolence. And I've learned tremendous amounts from Muslims You know, and Taoists, and people that are agnostic, and even atheists. I think everybody has something to contribute, and the common thread is compassion. We all want to share. We all want to lift each other up. And so exposure to different religions really enhanced and helped me to focus on my own faith and really be more mindful about the liberation theology and the social justice aspects of it.
0: Yeah, we do learn and we profit from those things. We grow where we're planted, right? And (laughs) we've got branches that reach out widely.
3: Yeah, exactly.
0: You mentioned something about this earlier, and I want to delve into it a little bit more because I was very aware of it when you were writing in the book. Like You mentioned in Misumali one of the things you wanted to insist upon was that girls attend the school equal numbers to boys. And that goes against culture. When I arrived in Togo, when I went out to my village, the first classes I taught, out of the first 60 students that I taught, two were females. And that's because I was teaching at a high school level. Already the numbers had been more balanced out in the lower grades. But when you got up to, you know, Fifteen was prime time to get married for a girl there, and so a different worldview than what we have. So I was teaching someone who's 16, 17, 18 years old. But you were fighting the culture, in particular female genital mutilation. I mean, there's things like that that are part of the indigenous cultures, like in Mali, where you were at at that time. How hard was it or how much did you feel like you had to back off or toe the line carefully? Talk a little bit about your struggles, not just imposing the Western view on people, but yet feeling like there was something important that needed to change.
3: Oh, that's a very good question, Mark, and a question that's not asked often enough. So we do not at all impose Western values or standards in the communities of the countries where we work. We insist upon it. But where the governments and the leaders have made statements and have actually penned laws against gender discrimination and against other sorts of atrocities, we really follow up. And so with our methodology, we really put the community members in front. So before we build a school with any community member, we talk to them, we listen to them, and we ask them if they're willing to send their daughters to school in equal numbers with their sons and why it's important for daughters to go to school, and we hear what they have to say. And if they do want to build a school and they do want to send their daughters to school, then we ask everyone to sign a covenant. And I think the signing of the covenant is one of the most powerful parts of our process because it's where elders who are the first to sign step up and make a commitment. And in a lot of cases the people that in in almost every case in Africa, the people that sign these covenants can't even sign their own names. All they can do is add their fingerprint or their thumbprint, yet they're willing to work to build a school so that someday their daughters and their sons can read and write. You know, that's, I think, the answer to your question in terms of the challenges. It's not much of a challenge. We put it to the people, and if they're willing to send their daughters to school, we work together. If not, then we part ways respectfully and peacefully. We rarely, if ever, have parted ways because education is a valuable thing that any community that has opportunity for wants to take advantage of.
0: You told one story that was particularly moving to me. I've forgotten the woman's name now, but I believe if she was in Mali. Uh, you know, she'd been married, arranged marriage kind of thing, I think, and Uh, It it was hard on her, female genital mutilation.
3: Sure, Comba
0: Dumbia. A Comba, yeah, yeah. And so share a little bit of her story because, I, I mean, and of course, I think people should go out and get the book, Walk in Their Shoes. Can One Person Change the World by Jim Zalikowski. But do talk about
3: Comba. Sure. So it was about 1030 at night and I was in one of our schools in Mali, in West Africa, and in almost all of our schools, the community members run adult literacy classes for the parents that work so hard to build these schools but themselves can't read or write. And I was watching as this woman was like learning to hold a pencil for the first time and signing and writing her name, and I found out that she had two granddaughters that were attending the school during the daytime, you know, that were day students, and I looked at her and I said, wow, you must be very proud. You know, her name is Comba Doomy And I said, Comba, you must be very proud. And she looked back at me and she said, I'm proud, but I'm also ashamed. And I was surprised by that. And I said, why, why would you be ashamed? And I got to know Comba much better and and found out that, well, first she said, I'm ashamed because I've lived in the darkness of illiteracy. And then, you know, I wanted to know what she meant by that. And I found out that when she was a young girl, she was subjected to female genital mutilation. And then when she was 15 years old, she was forced to marry a man that she never met and became one of three wives and was forced to leave the village with that person. And ultimately, he was abusive to Comba and the other three wives. And Comba lost three out of five of her children, uh, didn't survive. So she had lived this life of, of sorrow, and then she stepped up and wanted to become one of the leaders to build the school. We, wherever we build, we form a leadership committee of six women and six men. And Comba joined that leadership committee, and she had a crew that she worked with every, you know, every week that she was responsible for, and she became this really powerful leader in the community, and she went on to outlaw female genital mutilation in her village. And she was, once, once literate, started to petition different agencies for support and funding and loans so that they could buy income-generating equipment to process some of their agricultural products. And they went on to great success to raise money for the causes of the community through their own microenterprise and became more and more economically self sufficient. And so it's just this amazing story of this woman, Comba, and you know, and and she you know, I said, So if if you were ashamed because you lived in the darkness of illiteracy for so long, why are you proud? And she said, I'm proud because now I'm living in the light And she said, you know, I want you to share this and she wrote down a, a message. She said, I want you to share this with anybody that you see and it was just a little few words, but profound words that she wrote on a slate with a piece of chalk. And it says, thank you for bringing the light. And
0: that's what education is. You know, one part of the story that was kind of powerful is when you recount in the book that after the, what, 19 years or whatever it was, you actually went back to Misumali, which was, you know, really kind of the founding rock
3: where you got started. How did that all go? Well, when we were there building the school, you know, 20 years earlier, there was one person who really I became close with, and he was my best friend in the village. His name was Stephen Tambani. And he was on the work site every day. He was my mentor. And we were able to get the school built, and you know, there were 150 kids attending when I left. And shortly before I left, Stephen, his wife, gave birth to their first child, a little baby girl named Ruthie. And I got to hold her in my arms. And that was a powerful moment for me to hold a little child and hope that she would attend the school that we built, but not knowing for sure. And so going back 20 years later, you know, after we finished, I, I never looked back and never wanted to go back because I'd lost so many friends to HIV AIDS at the time, and I didn't know who would still be there. And, I, you know, I wasn't sure if the school would even still be standing because we built it at the base of a mountain and there could be mudslides or anything else. But finally I decided to go back, and when I got there, Found out that the chief he died from AIDS, and that our construction supervisor, his entire family died from AIDS, and and I couldn't find Stephen, and then finally I, you know, after half an hour, I saw him, and it was this powerful moment when we reconnected and then he took me to the center of the village and I was shocked because I did not know which school we built. Instead of one school and 150 kids, there's five schools and a thousand kids attending these schools every day. And 533 of them are girls. You know. And then Stephen introduced me to his daughter, Ruthie, and he explained, You know, he, he was beaming with pride and he explained that she went to the school that we built together. She went to all five of those schools. And then he started whispering, he said, you know, I'm an illiterate man, I can't even sign my own name. But Ruthie, she became a teacher, and now she will lift up my family's name forever. And I think that is one of the most profound and important stories in this book, because it's about Stephen, it's about Ruthie, it's about the fire that Stephen lit 20 years ago, and how education is a flame that cannot be extinguished, and now Ruthie is lighting those fires. So we have a lot to learn from Stephen and Ruthie.
0: There's so many amazing stories in Walk in Their Shoes. Can One Person Change the World? It's really wonderful all that you've lived through and that you're able to share through the book. Of course, with James Hirsch's help there, too. Oh, yeah.
3: Jim's an amazing guy. I learned to trust, admire, and respect him tremendously. And there's no way I could have written this book without him. In fact, I... I did not want to write it in first person and did not want to write about my own story at all until I met Jim, but I just have so much trust in him that I was able to do that. He's he's a wonderful man.
0: You know, from the days when you were struggling and, you know, to bring in a few cents was a great triumph to this point where Build On is just a major success. I, I think you mentioned along the way at one point you had a fundraiser didn't you bring in $2.3 million at one of these benefits or fundraisers, something like that?
3: Well, one of the, that was our most successful. That was one of the most recent. But we, we certainly did not start at that level. Uh, we were scraping by in the early days for sure. Well, and it's, it's grown
0: so much. How many people are officially buildon.org, volunteers
3: or staff, or how does, how does this work? Well, we have about 150 people that are full-time on staff worldwide. We're building 100 schools this year. means we break around on a new one every four days. And we're running our after-school programs in 70 urban high schools across the United States. And then in terms of volunteers, every day there are literally hundreds, sometimes thousands of community members working to build these schools, these build-on schools around the world. And we're mobilizing between three and 4,000 urban youth every week to get out into their communities and volunteer. So it's really inspiring to see the kind of movement and the kind of passion that people have developed around this cause. And it, it is just such a, a collective effort and a remarkable collective effort that I'm very, very humbled by the whole thing and being involved in it.
0: Well, one more thing I wanted to highlight, part of the experience that you share in the book, including trying to walk in their shoes. You and I, you know, you in Michigan, me in Wisconsin, we've all grown up with a privileged existence that a number of people don't recognize because we don't feel very privileged compared to those who are above us on the food chain. But at a certain point, you went and you lived in Harlem. And that has got to have struck a few people as counterintuitive. It's like all the people in Harlem, I'm not sure this is literally true, but I'm sure there's a lot of people in Harlem who would love to get to a place where they didn't have to live in a life-threatening place. But you went and lived there. Could you talk a little bit about that, what motivated you to do that, and how much of
3: their shoes did you really try on? (laughs) I like the last part of your question. So, uh, Mark, the reason I... I moved I had just spent almost three full years living in villages around the world learning from community members how to unite and build schools in Africa and Asia and South America. And I wanted I knew we needed to expand our work in the United States, especially in urban high schools. And I also knew that I had zero experience in inner cities in America. I grew up in a pretty small town in Michigan and just didn't have that experience, didn't feel qualified. So I moved to Harlem to learn from community members, to learn from the students, you know, what is most effective and what is most empowering. What I learned while I was there is that these students, these kids, and I spent three years living in a half-boarded-up brownstone not too far from one of the schools we work in. What I learned from these students in these neighborhoods is that they are the most determined, the most courageous and fearless people in America and they are the most compassionate. I never heard anyone say, I want to escape from this neighborhood. I want to get out of this this hood or that hood. They ne- I never heard that. What I heard, what I saw, was students that wanted to transform their communities. They wanted to make it better for their families, and they stepped up and did it, and they're stepping up and doing it right now and every day. It's a very powerful thing. There's a lot to be learned from the youth in America, and, and their leadership is is invaluable. In fact, I'm convinced that this generation of youth will be the generation to break the cycle of poverty, illiteracy, and low expectations through service and education. I'm convinced of it because I see it happening every day.
0: And you walked in their shoes for a while by living there. Somehow you had to interact with the drug dealers outside your door and you had to interact with police. What'd you learn from that?
3: Well, first, I, what I realized is, and I, I should, should answer this question, my intent to walk in their shoes, to walk in the shoes of the people in this Somali village, to walk in the shoes of, of people anywhere, I realized was impossible to me because I'm not subjected to extreme poverty or even poverty. So my idea of walking in their shoes was born out of solidarity. I wanted to be part of the community, really part of the community, but it shifted to admiration. I wanted to walk in their shoes because I admire, I respect who they are, and I learned so much from them, and they have been so generous with me. So that that I want to definitely clear up so people understand the origin of the, the title for this book. But in terms of your question about, you know, some of the specific things like being arrested, that was an interesting experience in Harlem. I was literally arrested for stealing my own car. And it sounds crazy, but my car had been stolen, you know, and recovered, and I, it was chop-shopped. I put it back together and got her back on the road, but they never took it off the list. So I was driving down the road one night in Harlem and got pulled over by three squad cars and rolled the window down, and the officer had a gun about four or five inches drawn in about four or five inches from my face, and he informed me that I was driving a stolen car you know, I said, oh, I know it was stolen, but I didn't steal it, and <laughs> he obviously didn't believe me, nor should he have, and they took me in, and I was trying to explain to the station supervisor that, you know, the car was stolen, recovered, etc. cetera, checked the VIN, the insurance, and they're like, not a chance. You get throw them in the tank, and they th- he threw me into the jail cell, and I'm sitting in there, and at this point, I'm I'm pretty frustrated and and really angry at at the unfairness the inequity of that and I'm sitting there and after about 10 minutes I notice there's another guy sitting there with me and I was like oh I look over and I feel like wow well I'm in jail I should add I got to ask the question right so I look over at this guy and I say so so what are you in for and he's like oh 10 grams of this 12 ounces of that and there was this long litany of drug-related charges and then at the end he looks over at me he's like what about you what are you in for and I said, me, I'm innocent. And he said, yeah, me too. We'll be out of here in no time. <laughs> and I, was, <laughs> I, was, uh, so I didn't laugh at the time, but I was out in a few hours, and I'm not sure what happened to that guy. But it was, you know, another example of things that can happen to you and when you're in certain circumstances. And you've got to be, I think, very diligent, and you've got to be mindful, and you've got to be patient and compassionate under all circumstances
0: and take into account the privileges and options that we have, like in Miso Mali, Malawi, where you and I can afford the medical treatment, or in Harlem, where you can post bail and might have someone actually listen to you. But there's so much that we can learn from walking in someone else's shoes, both the experience and the book, Walk in Their Shoes. Can One Person Change the World? It's by Jim Zalikowski, co-founder of Build On, Find them on the web at buildon.org. Of course, we couldn't fit all of your stories into this program, so there's more. If our listeners want to be further enriched, go to the web, nordenspiritradio.org and listen to the bonus excerpts of my interview with Jim Zalkowski. Jim, thanks for sharing both the inspiration and the stories, and living a life of compassion and service, and especially for joining me today for Spirit in Action.
3: Hey, Mark, I want to thank you for what you're doing, for giving voice to so many people and and shining a light on so many important causes and ways that we can all live more active and mindful lives. So thank you, Mark, very, very much.
0: My privilege. Again, find Jim Silikowski at buildon.org. I also want to thank Catherine B. Schultz for her support for Norton Spirit Radio. She's an Eau Claire attorney, a big believer in honesty, accuracy, and world healing work. In her case, helping clients restart their finances by guiding them through bankruptcy when needed. Call her at 715-835-8904. And mark on your calendar, November 2nd, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, at Pizza Plus, concerts by three musicians, a talk on organic foods by Cornucopia Institute, and much more fun, including an organic and local meal of pizza and Middle Eastern foods. See you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio.